Hey, just a heads up. There's a little bit of language in this episode. Hey, it's Lauren. Thank you so much for listening to The Afterlight. Enjoy the episode. This episode has been brought to you by the Raw Raw Spirit Team. Building a business can be overwhelming, but it doesn't have to be. We teach small and medium-sized businesses strategies for building a profitable, successful, stress-free business and life. Because guess what? You are more than your business. Through one-on-one training, online courses, and monthly guest experts, the Spirit Team is built on the principle of building each other up in business and in spirit. Try it for 14 days for free. Just head to rawrawconsulting.com and check out the Raw Raw Spirit Team. My guest today is James Babin, who is an artist, a counselor, a schematic, and theta healer. I've asked James back on the show because I had such a wonderful time talking to him in our first episode. And today we're going to talk a little bit more about self-limiting beliefs. And I also want to talk about the subject of self-love as well. So James, thank you so much for being on the show yet again. I was really moved by our conversations you know, in our last episode, and, and it means a lot that, you know, you're sharing your time and, and your wisdom with me today. Oh, thank you, Lauren, for having me. So for those who haven't listened to the first episode, obviously, I'm going to put the links to that in the show notes, and they really should go back and listen to it. But do you think you could just do a little recap about, you know, where your, you know, your spiritual journey sort of kicked off? Um, it's really hard to say exactly but um, I've always had spiritual things happen to me as a child and way back I remember you know um, spirits turning up I'd sense things feel things as a child I'd have the the sheet being pulled off me and I'd freak out and couldn't see anything and I'd hear and feel breathing and you know all this sort of stuff and um, you know of course that was pretty terrifying and then when I was a little kid, um, I used to have nightmares. But then I realised they weren't nightmares. They were actually full-blown visions in full bright colour and sound. And I'd turn to the left and they'd start. And I'd turn to the right and they'd start. I'd roll yeah. onto my tongue and a new one would start. And I did a lot of praying to turn it all off. And then one day I did. Now I'm praying to turn it back on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So... Um, but, yeah, I've always had that kind of thing. I've known I've had spiritual intervention with me. And then as the years passed, um, as I got a little bit older, I started to turn back to God, find my path, and I wanted to know more and more about, you know, God and spirit and life after death and that kind of thing. Mm. And here I am now in my 60s and I'm still asking those questions. What I love about your background is that, you know, you have this spiritual background. Obviously, you started with gifts when you were young. Uh, well, we all do, but you were, you know, probably even more enhanced. And you also, you know, you went on to do a career in counseling as well as your spiritual work. So, you know, how did that 
sort of start? Did you get involved in counseling because you wanted something that was a little bit more maybe accepted for the time? Or did you feel that the counseling really helped your, you know, your schematic and your theta healing? Or did that come after? How did that sort of work itself out? Um, counseling came before the theta healing. And in, uh, what was it, 1985, I went to the University of New South Wales to start a Bachelor of Social Work degree as a counsellor. And um, so I did that and then I graduated, I think it was in 1990. And in that last year of my fourth year placement of my degree, um, I elected to go to the Prince Henry Hospital Acute Care Ward, which was set up for AIDS patients. So I did a stint, I think it was six months or four months, I can't remember now, um, where I was in bereavement counselling with dying AIDS patients. So there was an acute care ward on the bottom, then above it was a palliative care ward. So I did my time there as an apprentice in my last placement of my social work degree. And then as a result of that, a job came up, so I applied for it and I won the job. So then I stayed there, I can't even remember now, a year, a couple of years. And what was interesting about that placement was uh, predominantly they were young gay men anywhere up to about 18 to about 35 was roughly the age. And all of them in those days, that was when um, AIDS and HIV was starting to be known. There's a you know, lot of drama around it. Mm. And these poor, poor men would come in and what would happen is they'd have a HIV-related um, illness um, they'd come in, get diagnosed, yep, you've got HIV. Then over the months had passed, they'd come back to the hospital for another little stint. And then bit by bit, you'd see them slowly getting sicker and sicker. And then eventually they're in the acute care for longer. And and all of them knew that they were going to die because in those days, it was you know, brand new. Mm-hmm. So I'd get to know some of these people for a couple of years. So I'd counsel them, first getting the HIV, then all up into the fact that you're now starting to show symptoms that says you've actually got AIDS, you progressed. And then directly above them was the AIDS unit where the palliative care AIDS units went, and that's where they generally died. And all these people, you know, it's pretty close knit, so they know one another. So they're all getting ready because they know they're all going to die. So anyway, being in that environment meant I had to face life, death, what did life after death mean, was God real, all these things. Yeah. And clients would say to me, look, um, what do you think, James? you reckon there's life after death? And I'd just say, look, I'll give you my opinion and I'd tell them that I did believe in life after death and God and so on. And then a quick example of it was one fellow said, oh, yeah, it sounds interesting, but I don't know if I believe in all that crap. But anyway, sounds good. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's good. At least you've heard it. That's my opinion. And I said, you just think about it. And then I was going to see him the next week, so I was counselling this man probably once, twice a week. And then um, his father came in and blew me up the next day. How dare I go and tell this man about life after death and rah, 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 there's no such thing. You know, you're giving him false hopes. So I blew the father up and said, you're not dying here. So we got through all that. Anyway, I saw that man and he said to me, gee, it's funny, ever since you told me this stuff, I don't know what's going on, but I just believe you're right and I believe it's true. And I said, well, you trust your heart. Mm-hmm. And then about probably oh, two weeks later, he died. And anyway, every day as I uh, do the counselling, I'd go home, sit in my armchair. And as I sat in my armchair, I'd just relax. 
I'd meditate and just be still. And that was my way of de-stressing because all day I was faced with death, dying, pain and gloom and doom. And so I'd sit on my chair and then this day I went into a, um, a deep meditation. I went into full vision and I was so immersed in the vision I didn't know whether I was um, in the chair or not. But I remember sitting in my chair, the door was shut, I was in my little flat and um, all of a sudden I could hear someone walking up the stairs and I could hear the breathing and the stepping. And I'm going, whoa, someone's coming to my door. And as I'm looking at the door, I realised the door was open. I'm thinking, I'm sure I shut the door. And then this man walked in the door and he was the fellow that had died like half an hour ago. And I'm going, but, but, but. And he was saying, you're right, James, you're right. Exactly what you said. I'm alive. My, my pain's gone. The AIDS is gone. I'm alive. And I'm going, ah, oh, ah, oh, ah. Oh. And I opened my eyes. And then I realised I was back in the chair. Oh, I quickly shut my eyes, but it was too late. The vision was gone. So just little things like that shocked me awake to show me that what I knew was true was real. And so I had those kind of experiences. And Mm -hmm. so the working in the age unit really helped me in terms of realising that God was real, the world of spirit's real, your body, when it dies, your spirit body leaves and it still is alive. And I'd often be counselling the clients and you'd notice, um, you know, Johnny's in bed and you're counselling for the last year or so and, you know, his mum was called Mary and she died like, you know, 10 years ago and then you hear him talking to his mum and you look around at first, you don't see anything but he's talking to all the deceased people and I'm the counsellor so I know who these people are and then one day I'm looking and I could see them standing at the end of the bed and it was the, the, the mother and some other people and the dog. And they're talking to these people in spirit. And then that day, as they're talking and so on, um, what I what I never told the staff was I used to take my didgeridoo. I played the didgeridoo and I do healing with it. So I taught these age patients in their bed how to listen to the sound of the didgeridoo and I'd play a tune. I'd invoke spirit. And as I played the didge, I got them to listen to it and just float away with the sound and when they did that their pain went away because they weren't in their body and in their pain and what in fact was happening because a lot of them were close to death they were starting to have out-of-body experiences so of course I didn't tell the staff and the doctor this but I'd show them how to ease out how to get away from the pain because there's only so much medication that can help them yeah anyway coming back to this man in the bed he uh he's talking to his mother Mary and the people there and and he, and several, a number of times, these dying patients asked me to play the ditch for them as they were dying. Now, what happens quickly, you know, people that don't know, in a ward like this, the doctors and the allied, heart, allied health staff come together and the doctor basically tells everyone, you know, counsellor, go call in all the doctors, Johnny's on his last legs. And they, they're pretty spot on. They, they get it pretty well. So we call them all in and you can see that the person's very close to death. And, um, and often I used to say to the client, I give you permission to die, it's okay. And once I did that, nine or ten times they would die within a couple of hours. So anyway, I whispered that to Johnny and he was okay. And then I, and he asked me to play the, the ditch for him because I knew he was about to die. So I did. And no sooner had I started, maybe half a minute in, you could see the, the parents at the end of the bed Johnny starts lifting out of his body. He floats off with a big smile and he was gone. And that happened a number of times. So in my time at the age unit, I saw a few things. I felt many things. I had the absolute conviction there is life after death. 
I know absolutely loved ones come to you when you're on your deathbed and they guide you home. Even the family dog does. So all of that did help me to um, strengthen what my belief in spirituality was about and life after death and who I was. So the journey continues. That's so beautiful. I think I shared with you in our last episode that what sort of kicked off my journey with spirituality was my fear of death. And when I found James Van Prague's book, Talking to Heaven, it just opened up this whole world for me that I I never really understood before. How do you counsel people who are dying? I mean, it sounds to me like, I mean, you're such a graceful speaker and I feel you know, I'm sure many people feel comfortable with speaking with you and being heard by you. You're also wise. I mean, is it just connecting with somebody and being there for them? Or, you know, how do you find people deal with this, this news that, you know, they're going to die based on, you know, the limitations that we have at the moment? And yeah, I mean, how do you have those conversations or or help them through that, especially if they're not, you know, aware of life after death, as, as you explained in your first case. Yeah, what happens is a lot of people are taught um, generally just in life. If someone's hurting and they're crying, the first thing we want to do is say, oh, it's okay, okay, stop crying, you're right, you're right. And we want them to stop and we don't want to see their pain because it affects mm-hmm. us and we don't want to be there. So we try and stop them from crying and, and get the pain sorted. But the yeah. reality is, is the Western system is so buggered up that we don't actually address our emotions. And your emotions, yeah. your, your feelings are number one. You've got to let them out. So when a client comes to you like this and you're in an environment where you know there's a pretty high probability all these people will die, they've got also that belief that that's probably what's going to happen too. So when they first get diagnosed, they're not dying, but they, yeah, they've got HIV and the end result yeah. well, is probably are going to die. So they sort of know that. But yeah. a lot of them also don't equally want to believe that. So they're obviously freaking out because they're, abs- they're going into an immediate shock of crisis. And the crisis is it's an ongoing, unresolvable thing because they're now being diagnosed. And they know from what they know of their friends and read, it progresses down to age and death. So you can't counsel them and make them better in terms of, you know, I'm going to fix you up because you can't do that. So what you've got to do is acknowledge that, okay, this person's got this, I need to be still, I need to be with the person and I need to just hear them, I need to listen, I need to demonstrate to the client I'm there for them 100%. And and, in, and to do that means if someone's there crying, sobbing, screaming, whatever they are, instead of getting worked up or worried about it, I calmly sit with them, hear them out and I let them speak and one of the techniques of counsel, counseling, it's called reflective listening. You reflect back what they say and that validates for them that you've heard them, you're listening and you're in tune. So Lauren's talking about, oh, gee, she's fell over and her knees sore and bloody hell, you know, life's a bitch and rah, 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 and oh, my knee's hurting, but gee, my dad was terrible. And I'll go, gee, your knee's hurting. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, it's bloody hurting. What happened? Oh, I fell over that bloody dog. Oh, my knee. Oh, poor Lauren. And, and we focus on your knee. And as we get through it, or it might seem insignificant, by that point, your knee is very important. And it turns out that it's really not about your knee, but it goes down back to two or three things behind it, which is actually your dad. And as we get through it, the person's going, wow, he's here, he's listening. Oh, and as I'm talking and reflecting and 
saying the right things and emotionally sitting with you, you gain greater trust because I'm with the person. The person mm. knows I'm listening. They can feel me and they know I'm in tune. And as I'm listening to them, then I go straight into wherever they are and whatever they want to talk about with a few prompts, I can go pretty quickly into the, the very bottom of what it is that they are trying to tell me. And most mm. people won't present with, you know, I've got an issue with my dad, they'll present something else. And right. you dig in a little bit and you get there. So mm-hmm. when it came to talking to these people, the key is just to be with them, listen, be present, acknowledge them and allow them to be. And then when you work with them that way and they feel safe, they open up if they if they are going to open up. And nine out of ten will. And as I counseled them, the next step was is I couldn't save them. So I need to acknowledge I can't save them. But the healing work of counselling, which is a form of healing, is you work with them and you say, all right, I can't physically fix you, but I can fix you and help you mentally, emotionally, spiritually at many levels. So little Johnny, you're yes, you are going to die. And we'll talk about that. And that's a big shock. But what are you going to do now from now till death day? What is unresolved? What can we work on? And things could be, well, I've been a real mongrel in my life and I've heard all these people and I wish I could say sorry. Some of them already dead. Let's write a letter. So I'll sit down and write a letter with them and we'll either write it and we'll put it somewhere or we'll burn it, but we know it went out and not explain it, goes into spirit and they hear it. Or we can post a real letter. Um, I might even help them have conversations with their family to tell them what they need to hear, mm-hmm. those kind of things. So you can resolve a lot of things emotionally through talking through things, giving them clarity. And the role of the counsellor is to not tell them anything, but to reflect back to them and to empower them with their understanding to give them greater choices on how they might move forward in their life. Yeah. So you empower the client. And so that empowers them to close um, unfinished business, to prepare themselves saying, okay, I'm sort of cleaned my house now. I'm ready to go. Everything's done. I can't do any more. Mm-hmm. So you prepare them mentally and emotionally for all of that. And then through spiritual discussion of the potential of life after death, irrelevant what they believe, um, through those discussions and them gaining your trust and sensing who you are, most people know if you're full of bullshit or not. Yeah. And when they're in a normal state, they can see it pretty quickly because yeah. their masks are down. And, uh, and when, you're, when I'm in that normal state, my mask is down. I don't really yeah. have a mask, but I'm yeah. there with them. Yeah. So it's... That's how you do it. You've got to be real. You've got to be a person and you've got to be with them 100%. And wherever it is they're at, that's, that's where you work from, not based on my agenda. So that's right. how I did it, yeah, if, I, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I like how, you know, basically what I'm hearing from you is that you're just, you're there and you're the present awareness for them while they work out. Yeah, so almost a sounding board in a way, but at the same time, supportive and compassionate yeah and you've got to be loving and caring and show them that you are there you're not just you know doing your job um even though you are doing your job but you've got to also have a heart to want to be there and they know that and Mm so um all i can say is it's probably the hardest job i've ever done yeah but do you think it's also one of the most rewarding jobs you've ever done i mean being able to help people to you know remove their regrets or to tie up their loose ends or to you know even find different perspectives like that life after death is a possibility as in your first story you know would you also say that 
you're the right man for the job when you were doing that? I believe I was. And if you look at it from, you know, a divine perspective, obviously I was put there at the right time for, for these particular people. Yeah. Um, and obviously I, as soul, needed that experience. Yeah. So, yeah, everything was absolutely right. I was the right person for the job in that way. And in a situation like that, we have a lot of people who don't believe in God, don't believe in life after death. They believe there's nothing. And then when you're on your deathbed ready to die, people, even the ones who don't believe, start asking questions and they're wondering, well, gee, is it really nothing or is it something? And even the non-believers, and I've met a few of them, will start to ask questions about it because they're wondering. And mm. a lot of people would like to believe there's more to it. So yeah. um, and the other thing people don't realise, which I talk to clients about, is when people are birthed, they come from the world of spirit. And now birth, they come through the shock of, you know, ent- entering into the world. And then for the first seven years of life, they're culturised and socialised. And then they become conditioned and they tend to be blocked up in terms of we, to- we tell them what's right, wrong, good and bad and what reality is. Mm. So their truth of the divine starts to drop away. They then become older and whether they're going to spiritually open doors and seek is up to them. And then they finally get into old age if they get there. And then they start to get closer to death. And then they start to wind down and start to psychically awaken and open up more to the spiritual, ready to depart and go back to spirit. So these people are already halfway there, starting to psychically awaken more. And we might refer to people having dementia and delusions and all this stuff, but a lot of it isn't. They're actually becoming more psychically in tune and aware, but Mm. they have no to actually validate and clarify what's going on for them. And I notice that when I see these people on the deathbed, and a lot of them see and hear a lot of things that normally they don't see and hear, and yet it's just all part of their delirious state. But is it? Yeah, but is it? <laughs> I'd say it isn't, from what I can see. But yeah, when you see anything around, they're they're on the money. They're spot on. Yeah, it's funny because when you you know look into this stuff and you hear stories, a lot of people who are transitioning uh, into death or into the next phase, I guess. There are so many congruencies and similarities in all their stories, you know, that they're tying loose things, like tying up loose ends on earth, that they start talking to people who have passed over, that they start making plans for what they're going to do. And, you know, like there's a lot of these sort of patterns, I guess you could say. And it's not as though all these people got together to create this decision themselves. (laughs) They're all happening unique, you know, uniquely. Yeah, all, all these people all around the world, and when you think about it, and there's thousands of books you can read about this, they all yeah. basically talk about the same story. So yeah. that tells you this truth there. And they, and they all haven't colluded together either. And then yeah, you'll exactly. meet all these non-believers and believers, and, and they're all, all banging the same drum. Yeah. So um, I have no doubt. Yeah, it's funny because I find that sometimes when, you know, you feel like this, I guess I can just say that, you know, my grandma is 90, 90, almost 92. And, you know, she's feeling closer to death for sure. And she doesn't, um, she just doesn't think like this. She doesn't believe in life after death. And it's, it's very sad. And I explained to her that I don't believe that, like, I believe she just changes form. And it was just, she didn't, 
understand it all what I was talking about. And so I had to sort of just leave that because it would have been more confusing than anything to try to explain it. And I guess, you know, there's all different types of people, isn't there? There's all different types of thinking there. And we all, we find our way, you know, when we're meant to or not. Yeah. And, and, the, and my understanding of it is whether you believe it in or not, either way, you go into spirit and you don't die. Yeah. And then yeah. when you get over there, you're going, what though? I'm still thinking, I'm still alive, what's going on? And <laughs> yeah. at some stage, realisation occurs and people are there to help you. So we all get to go over and we all get to move on, um, which sort of leads me into all the entities you find in houses. Oh, and a gosh. Lot of them are, yeah, and a lot of these characters are the ones stuck in the houses which are a little bit earthbound yeah. and others have died but not quite sure. So I tend to put them into the light every day because they come to my house. Oh, do so they? So this life after death business doesn't stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your, uh, your work is never done, James. <laughs> no, it's funny. I um, I never put my hand up to be the you know putting people into the light, but I've noticed over the years um, because I've you know learned how to cl- cleanse houses of spirit and so on. I do healing. Mm-hmm. Um, as your light grows stronger, those in spirit see it, and they know that you know your light's a little bit brighter. They know somehow they understand what you're doing, and all I know is. My house, the guides bring them to my house, anyone in spirit. Mm-hmm. And it's like they put a guiding light here and they all turn up. And every day there are mums and dads and kids, the dog, the horse, the cow, the fishes, <laughs> everything turns up at their house. And I'm going, really? And so I start cleaning and I put them into the light. So I have to meditate just about every day, very rarely I miss. Yeah. And I always spend a moment putting everything into the light. Because if I don't, I will start to notice breathing i'll smell um people's perfume walking around the room we'll be laying in bed and you'll hear footsteps and cupboards will creak and you'll be going yep there's characters walking around the house and and it's a bit unnerving and so i just said i don't know what i'll just fix you so i just clean them and move them on so i make it a habit every day of moving them into the light wow and other times when i've been really slack in the past i mightn't have cleansed for about three days mm. or the house builds up and even the most blocked person will start to notice this things in your house. <laughs> so it's funny. It's not really scary. It's just sort of funny when you think about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was originally quite scared about that stuff. And then I had it explained to me from one of our other guests where I basically understood that these are just people that have lost their way. They're not bad people. I think that sometimes when we think of entities, Really, we've been, you know, sort of misinformed by horror movies and things of that nature when really that's not what it is. And so if you think about it in terms of moms and dads and children and, and, and people, souls like ourselves, you know, that have lost their way. For me, what helped me is I actually felt compassion instead of fear. And that Mm-hmm. that sort of has helped me with that process a little bit because I was struggling with that for a long time. Yeah, a lot of people struggle with it because, you know, the movies hype it up and there's a lot of ignorance about a lot of things. Yeah. Over the years, irrelevant of what I've read, I've had to learn it, you know, firsthand. And, and it is scary. You go into a house and someone brings you and says, oh, my house is haunted again. You fix it, go, yeah. So I turn up with my didgeridoo. 
<laughs> and then you know, you're on red alert because you can sense things as weird things. And I'm also a bit empathic, so I'll go into a house, and if the person's a bit of a yucky character, like a mean person, straight away you feel it's yucky and angry and mean. Mm. Or if they're really sick, you can feel their sickness. So anyway, you go into the house, and don't get me wrong, I don't see and hear, hear everything. I just get what I'm given. Yeah. And um, sometimes I'll see them clearly. Other times I just absolutely know that's how I see. And then you'll come across someone, and when you suss out who they are, a lot of these people I found in the home, in houses and places, I call them earthbound entities because for one reason or another, they have either unfinished business where they didn't die and then go into the light and transit through. They've decided to stay because something's holding them here. Others don't believe in life after death and they only know what they know. And so they tend to frequent and stay where they are. Mm-hmm. And I've met a number of these characters. And, and for a number of reasons, they're just not ready to move on. And as that's the case, I'll bump into all these characters of various levels of really yucky to really nice people, including um, even animals. And I don't, I'm not sure why animals are there, but they are. But they all come to the light. And um, sometimes you have to coerce them or, you know, convince them. And I've been places where I'd see someone and I'd go, what are you doing? And when you get talking to them, you know that they're confused. They're not sure what's what and they don't even know what they're doing. So I'll convince them to come and I'll create like light. There's ways you can put a pillar of light through your mind. So I'll I'll just create that in my mind and you can see it there. And I'll talk them into it and I'll say, look, I'll go in there with you. It's safe. And I'll put my hand out and I'll hold my hand. We'll walk in. And as soon as we go in, they go. So there's lots of little ways you you can do it. But you just got to be gentle with them. And I've noticed that works. But when I use a didgeridoo in a, in a house cleansing, um, I haven't been taught this, but I discovered it. Um, what happens when you play a didgeridoo is you play the sound again, ba-dum, 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 and then as it's doing a monotonous sound, what happens is you can go into an altered state and you probably go into a light state of alpha when you're playing maybe even into theta. But when you're I'm playing this dig, I channel spirit, my guides. So they'll either step straight into my body or stand with me and they're playing the dig through me. And anyone who was clear one, they'd be able to see that as the didgeridoo played its tune, it's like an emanating vortex of energy flowing out of the dig. And this vortex of energy goes out bigger and bigger. And it's like a vacuum cleaner. It sucks up all the energy in the house. And anything that's negative, anyone in spirit, it just sucks them into the didgeridoo. And as it's all coming up into the dig, halfway up that dig, it turns into a dimensional doorway. And everything that was in that house, that energy goes into the doorway, into the world of spirit. Otherwise, it would all come into me, which I don't want. And so spirit does all that. And then once it's all sucked clean, the dig reverts and then all the divine energy flows through God and and spirit through the dig. And like a big um, light, it goes into the house and fills it and, and lifts the vibrational energy of the house up. So a house cleansing, that's how I do it with the didgeridoo. Wow. And I, can do, I can do that without going to the house and just do it in my mind and intend it. Yeah. And it's like I go there and you just move everything and it's done and yeah. you call God and spirit. And that's how I used to do a lot of house cleansings. And, yeah, you do meet a lot of characters in spirit um, for one reason or the other. And the other one, because um, we're talking about it, is I, I bump into a lot of clients who come to me for healing. And a lot of people pick up entities, which means they, we, we refer to them as an attachment. 
Mm. So a person turns up and they've got someone attached to their energy. And when you look, just say Bob turns up and he needs a bit of help, or you'll see an entity standing beside him with an umbilical cord attached to that physical person. And often they don't even know that's the case, but they feel a bit out of kilter and things aren't right. And this person that's attached isn't evil or bad or a monster. It's just Mm. someone who's died and lost their body. But they gravitate towards that person. Anyway, they're connected. So when I do the cleansing, I remove these entities. And a lot of people you take entities from, they can feel where the connection was. Oh, I've got a sore lower back for some reason. or My hip really hurts. You move the thing, it's gone. And the other one where and people say, but how do I get this thing? And I joke with them, but I'm not joking. I say, be very aware of who you jump into bed with. Have you ever wondered who's in the bed with you? And they go, what? And I go, you think about it. You immerse yourself in the arms of another. All their stuff dumps onto you and vice versa. Mm. You then embrace in an intimate way and you download one another. And whatever's there comes with you. And I said, if they've got characters running around following them, guess what? They're all in the bed with you. Have you ever thought about that? And, going, oh. and I say, and when you, when you go and stay in a motel, that motel might be 100 years old. I wonder how old that bed and that space is. A lot of people hang around there, don't they? And they go, oh, I'm terrified of these hotels. And I said, don't be scared, but just be aware where you go. You are surrounded in the world of spirit and energy. And, and characters in spirit who are a bit lost will follow you. If they think, think you're nice or they like you or your energy resonates, they come home with you. That's how it happens. Obviously, drugs and alcohol is another one. You lower your vibration and you're opening yourself up for greater connection with these characters mm-hmm. and people pick them up that way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the other quick one is a lot of people where there's been trauma, where there's been car crashes and people have died. Yeah. A traumatic event. Um, often you'll still find them there wandering around in a daze. So I've noticed things like that. Mm-hmm. And this isn't just always for everyone, but just in my limited experience of coming across these things, um, yeah, so the world of entities is real, and no, yeah. they're not all full of monsters like the movies tell you. Yeah, they're just real people like you and me. Yeah, and they're just hurting, so they just don't have a flesh body. That's all. Yeah, and in our last episode for our listener at home, James did talk about some ways of, you know, uh, putting up boundaries and some clearing and cleansing techniques as well. So, you know, if you are wanting some more information on that, I would really recommend that you go back and you listen to that episode. And as I said at the top of the show, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. James, can we talk a little bit more about, you know, your shamanic healing? I know, you know, is that part of being... You know, is that part of your Aboriginal culture, you know, that you got into the shamanic healing? Is that connected to the didgeridoo? Is that all part of it? Did you, is that from your culture that you've, you know, brought forward? Um, It's hard to explain because if you try to, um, now Lauren and I have had this conversation where I don't really give myself a lane. Yeah. Yeah, I do healing. I walk a spiritual path. Um, But when it comes to shamanic practice, um, there's lots of definitions of what that actually means. But Mm. when I look at what I do, um, the easiest way is to say I work with the world of spirit. I'm not religious. Yes, I believe in God. And when I engage with Mother Earth, the world of spirit, um, people refer to me working with earth-based energies. Uh, people say, oh, you're a shaman, you do these things with Mother Earth and the world of spirit and so on. And here I do, my way. I mm. use a didgeridoo. Um, 
I use my mind to project places and do things, such as house cleansing. Yeah. Um, so I, I've been taught also how to sit in a, in a medicine circle and create one and to call the four directions in and, and so on. So I know some of the basics of, you know, a number of things. But when I work predominantly, I'd say I, I work in a composite of what you would call a spiritual way of walking, which doesn't really quite have a label. And yes, it is shamanic. It is spiritual. It's a bit of theatre. It's a bit of that. Mm-hmm. So when someone comes to me for a healing, I give them a bit of whatever yeah. um, as I'm guided. And as it feels right, um, one client might get predominantly counselling, but with a bit of a clean-up. Another will get predominantly one big clean-up. Others will get, um, I'm, I'm perceiving past lives. And, and when you're doing theatre healing, I'll often notice that, I don't know, a client has a particular issue and it could be that they resent their mother. And you go, okay, and we track back to find out what's going on. And then I'll notice if it's there, um, something comes up for when they're actually a baby in a womb or you'll see a link going back in time so it would be referred to as a past life. So then I'd actually start tracking back in my mind to see what comes up and as I feel it, I allow that, I guess, vision or image to allow myself to see what I'm seeing. And then I can see that past life and I'm only shown the amount I need. And then I go, oh, I can see the patterns. I can see what went down, why you're holding, whatever. And if I can see that, I can pull those beliefs and cleanse and move the trauma all the way up to that person as a baby in this current life in the womb, then up to the key incidences right to now as to why they're holding things. And if I can do that, I can cleanse the base core root problem and everything else just falls over and it cleans up. So am I a shamanic practitioner? Sort of. <laughs> do I walk a spiritual path? Definitely. Yeah. And when I look at all the bits I do, it's hard to explain, but well, I haven't been taught how to do the dig. I just taught myself. Mm. Um, my guides teach me. They come to me in dreams and my higher self just shows me. I just do it. Um, but no one knocks on the door says, Jane, for having a lesson today. It's just, I just know how to do it. Yeah. Um, when it comes to channeling this energy, no one's taught me. I just do it. Um, I make these things called medicine stones. And I, I can get any object. doesn't matter what it is. Uh, even if it was your kitchen table. I can sit there, do a prayer. And in my mind, I can open up a vortex of energy in it. And I invoke it. And the, and the light appears and this thing will pump, pump out divine energy forevermore and it flows out of that table. If it's as big as a building, I can do it for the building. So I make a little stone about as big as your hand and I open it up in a four-way direction and I bring the light through and I call them medicine stones. Spirit referred to them as light stones. Who taught me that? No one. I just do it. Don't know how, but I know how. Yeah. Um, so all of these things, when I look at it, are gifts that I've been given. Yeah. And when I say the gifts, um, someone physically never sat me down and gave me anything or did anything for me. I have remembered what I was given when I was before I was born. And then the other thing is, um, what, how do I explain this? All right, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about a, the rainbow serpent. And this might give you a sense of gifts and shamanics and, and whatever. Years ago, or maybe 30 years ago, I was in Darwin and uh, me and this other girl, uh, and I'll call her black and white, she was a white-skinned woman, so we were both in a spiritual development class. And anyway, we got talking and we're driving down near Darwin Wharf 
And on the side of the wall, up in the bushes, which isn't there now, there was a small dirt cave, big enough to walk in, goes in for about maybe five metres. And we didn't know that was there, and we are going along, and we thought, wow, what's that? And then I just knew we had to go in there because there was something waiting for us. So we both went in there, knowing that we were going to have a spiritual experience. And as we climbed up in this hill and part of the bushes and went into this cave, she felt um, she had to face the ocean so she could see the sea. So she headed back to me. I walked into the cave. I'm thinking, well, now what? It's just all dirt. So there was nothing in there. So I sort of sat there scratching my head. Then I thought, okay, I've got to meditate. So I sat quietly and I just meditated to try and allow whatever was going to happen. I probably meditated for about 20 seconds. And then all of a sudden, this tremendous energy started to come into the cave. And then the rainbow serpent came out of the ground. And it's hard to explain, but this huge snake being of all colours flowed through my body, body and was swirling up through the floor, through my body, up to my head, into the ceiling of this cave. And it felt like the cave was thrumming. And I'm going well, far out. And, and I was in full-blown vision. This was going on. And then I realised I could hear all this singing and chanting and Aboriginal singing and um, didgeridoos and everything. I'm going, God, and I'm looking around. And then in this small circle, there was a male, there was a, a man, woman, man, woman, and in between each man and woman, there was a snake swirling up from the floor to the ceiling. And they were around me in full ceremony. And all this energy was pouring into my body. Well, after about, I think this went on for five or ten minutes, I virtually staggered out of there. Oh, sorry, I'm still in there. And then I knew they had a gift. And they told me to dig in the back wall. So I sort of scratched into the back wall, went in probably about three or four inches, and then there was this big rough quartz rock about the size of a head. It reminded you of a, a bullock's heart. And I'm going, wow, it's a big heart. So I took that, thanked them, and then we both... And I walked to the front of the cave where the girl was, and then I could see these Aboriginal elder women sitting with her. So there was three of them. And they were the guardians of that cave while the business was going down for me. Wow. Anyway, we went out of the cave, and then somehow the rock either jumped out or fell out of my hand, hit another rock, and cracked into three smaller hearts. And I'm going, okay. So I gave her one, and I had to give her some energy. So I held her hand, and I could feel the energy transfer. And she was given some of that energy. Well, ever since then, what I call rainbow serpent energy or snake medicine, I've had that with me. And that energy is in my body, with me, around me. And it's what you call healing energy. So, um, and that was my earliest experience of having that. And then when I focused on it, I realised I set that up before I was born, that I'd come there, find that cave and be given that medicine. So I gave to myself before I came here. And you go, really? You go, yep. So since then, I've had many encounters with, you know, um, these beings called the Rainbow Serpent, and they come in various forms. And they've come to me, and I've met them, and they've spoken. They've come through my body. And many times I just see them flowing in and out of my body. Um, yeah, it sounds pretty crazy. but <laughs> So I've had lots of experiences that you might call very spiritual or shamanic or God wow. knows what you call them. <laughs> but magical. to me it's normal magical yeah yeah um and you don't normally tell everyone because it so what what does it mean but i've had all these experiences and and all i can say is the gifts i've been given um i've either set them up before i came and that was some of them and then the other one is 
whoever it is I am in spirit and whoever James is supposed to be, God knows, I don't know. I'm just James, but <laughs> I believe I carry a lot of medicine. Um, and what happens is I'll go places. I don't know. One quick example was I met a lady and she had these, um, uh, like a necklace from Papua New Guinea with um, some pig tusks on it and some shell things. And she didn't know what to do with it. So she said, you're the man I need to give it to. And I was like, okay. So I thanked her. I'm going, God, what is this thing? So anyway, I took it home. I thanked her and I cleansed it. And anyway, as I focused on it, the uh, the elders from Papua New Guinea came. And they were like, you know, very powerful elders. And they blessed me and thanked me and they gave me their medicine of healing. Now, I don't know how to use the healing, but I know they, they gave me that medicine through that necklace. Mm-hmm. And so it comes into me. I'm the holder of it. I'm going to use it somehow. Another time I went to, um, uh, I was on the train going to Sydney and I don't know, I don't know if I shared this with you, but I, um, I went into full vision. I was just sitting on the train. It's like you're nearly asleep, half, half asleep. And then I realised I was in New Zealand. I'm going, whoa. And I'm, and I'm standing at the beach. And I'm going, okay, I'm on the train. I'm in New Zealand, standing at the beach, sort of dreaming awake. And, and I'm standing on the beach. And then this Mary Elder came and he had all these uh, ink markings all over him. He just had, I think, shorts on. And he held this big white fish. And it was a bright white fish in his hand. And I'm going, okay. And the waves, I could hear everything, see everything. And I couldn't quite understand, but I knew what he was saying. He was blessing me and he offered me this sacred food. So I thanked him and I received the fish and I think I ate it or or had a bite of it. And then we were talking, but I couldn't comprehend what he was saying, but I sort of knew what he was saying. And then we walked up the beach and then we agreed that um, I would go up to this big house and I knew it was called a longhouse. Anyway, we went up into this place and there were other elders and, and a number of people there. and. Even though I couldn't understand him in English, I knew he was saying, well, you know, it's time for initiation. We're going to give you blessings and, and medicine or something like that. I'm going, okay. So I was expecting to get a, you know, a little something happen and, yeah, there you are, God bless. But no, they pulled out some sort of long stick with a little hook thing on it and that was what they tattooed with. So anyway, I was expecting to get a little tattoo. Well, no. Before I knew it, I'm standing there naked and every square inch of my body got tattooed. And I'm covered with these Maori tattoos from head to toe. Even the private parts are tattooed. Wow. And I'm going, okay. And then all this. <laughs> so I'm thinking, this is pretty good. And all this um, energy flowed into my body. And then all that was sort of done. And then we're walking back down. And, um, and I'm thanking him. And then we're walking along the beach. And then the, the Maori elder said goodbye. And I said goodbye and thanked him. And I'm walking along the beach and then I notice there's a, a rock sort of out in the ocean but right on the edge and someone was sitting on it. So I walked up to this rock and I jumped up on it and then when I got there, I got a bit of a scare because there was this really scary, evil-looking thing on the rock and it was a woman. But I realised it was a mermaid. And then I, when I focused on it, I think, well, no, it's not evil, it's not bad. It's just very scary-looking. She was shaggy-haired with big teeth, big claws and feet, and oh. it wasn't these sexy hot babes you see in the movies <laughs> with the, you know, the fishermen. It was not that mermaid at all. And I'm going, this is a mermaid, but not the one I was expecting. <laughs> and anyway, I sort of walked up. I'm thinking, God, is this safe? But it was. And the mermaid being was talking to me and again. I couldn't quite comprehend what she said, but I knew what she was saying. And she was eating a fish. And I'm going, okay, and we're talking. 
And then she said, oh, I've got to go, got to go. And it was like, not got scared, but she knew she had to go because something was about to happen. And she quickly jumped in the water and I could feel this energy coming. I'm going, whoa, and I looked to the sea. And as I looked to the sea, the ocean started to rise up and it got really, really big. And as it got really, really big, the sea turned into a giant head about the size of maybe a 10-storey building. And this sea was just huge and a great big Maori head appeared. And I'm going, my God. And it was like the, 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 sea, uh, the god of the sea appeared. And this big god being just came up and he put his nose straight onto mine and just touched me, blessed me and went back and the sea receded. And I'm going, whoa. Wow. And then I was back in the train. <laughs> um, so what was all that? But all I can say is I know I was immensely blessed and they gave me a necklace with all these um, like white bone necklace and it's got stuff on it. All I can say, I was given a lot of um, spiritual stuff um, wow. from that culture. And this is just one of many things that have happened to me. <laughs> you know, I, James, couldn't tell you how to use it, what to do or, you know, scratch my bum and do three twists and say the how Mary doesn't work. But yeah. all I know is I've been given energies, knowledge, wisdom, and if I'm meant to use it somehow in the future, I will. Yeah. Maybe it's starting to flow through me now. I have no idea. Mm. And people say, well, how do you use this? I don't know. But mm. I know it's given. And when I do healings and cleansings, um, I know it's just not me doing the job. In fact, yeah. it's not really me at all. It's, it's all the spirit guides. It's yeah. the helpers that do all the business in God. So more and more as the years pass, I'm becoming more the vessel. Um, I'm more the holder of this knowledge, whatever it is. And whomever is meant to receive or have some of this will be given it. And however I'm supposed to help the world and humanity, I will. Um, but I, I know I hold a lot of medicine. And that's just one of the many stories. And, um, yeah. James, your visions are so clear. I've heard stories before of people that have experienced, you know, near-death experiences and that their visions are so clear they remember it as if it were yesterday. And it sounds to me as though a lot of the stories and the visions that you've had have had the same impact that even though years have gone by, you remember it in such vivid detail. Absolutely. And, um, and you know, it's like I didn't dream it and you forget it. I actually really happened and it was clear. And it's like you're sitting here, you're quite aware of your body where you're sitting, you're aware of your surroundings, you're not asleep, but you're seeing all this stuff and you're there doing it. Yeah. And, and so when I've had these things, they happen. And, um, and I don't know, another quick example of it was um, I met this medicine man an Aboriginal medicine man who was telling me um, about, you know, the, the Bigfoot, the Yetis, uh, the big hairy men. Well, he was saying, oh, yeah, somewhere in this thing reached out of the creek and grabbed him on the leg and freaked him out. I'm going, wow. So I went and met him. We're talking about it. And as he's telling me the story, I could see these two big men about seven, seven foot tall standing there beside him. And I'm going, far out there here. He's going, really? And I'm going, yep. Anyway, long story short, I went home. I only just sat down when I got home and then I realised someone was in the room. I'm going, whoa, and I turned around and the two big hairy men were in the room. I'm going, oh, shit, what's this? <laughs> and they are looking at him. I'm going, uh-oh. So I started talking to them and everything was fine, but they brought me their medicine. And, and it sounds weird, but often when I look at my hands, I can see big hairy hands. 
So I carry that medicine, they walk with me, and it, whenever I focus, I see them. So again, how do I use this? No idea, but it's part of me now. And then anyway, when I saw them that night, um, I thanked them, everything was fine. I went to sleep. And then in the middle of the night, the most freakish experience happened. I'm dead asleep. And then all of a sudden in my dream, I remember this phenomenal energy, like a lightning bolt came in through the third eye. It ripped down through my body and the impact was so severe. My whole body just shook on the bed like it jumped. And then I think it came out the base chakra. Like that, and I jumped off the bed like physically, and I landed back on the bed, and I caught my breath, and the phenomenal energy just flowed straight through me. And that was those big hairy men; they bought through whatever they bought through, and it was phenomenal. And they've been with me ever since. Um, so, but I didn't dream that one. Yeah, that's wow. When you're listening to your story, you know you can't help but but just be on the edge of your seat and going, wow, I want that, <laughs> you know? And, you know, for our listener at home, James has gone through a lot of adversity as well in his life. So he has, he has earned these gifts. He is, you know, put in the work. He's doing the meditations. He's, he's putting in the time to reflect on himself and to become the better version of himself. So, you know, if you're interested in more in James's story, we're not going to go into that today because we already talked about it in the last episode, but I keep throwing back to the last episode because they're really just work so well together, the two of these two. Um, but would you say, James, that in a way, you know, you're gifted these things and these opportunities because you're also putting in the work? I mean, you you can't expect that, I can't sit here and expect that I'm going to have these transcending experiences until I'm putting in the effort as well to be worthy of receiving them. Absolutely. To me, anyone can be psychic. Even the most nastiest, yuckiest, darkest character you've ever met could be super psychic. So psychic has got nothing to do with being spiritual. But when you want to be spiritual, to me, it's walking the path to God. And when you walk the path of God, which is an inward journey, it's an inward journey of self-cleansing, self-healing, self-balancing, and it's trying to walk your path on a daily basis the right way. Mm-hmm. Now, all of us have done things in our past that are wrong. We've hurt people. We've done things that we shouldn't have done and so on. And you can't change your past. Yeah. But you can work with you now, as I put it, with all your bullshit, and you can turn around and look and go, geez, I'm full of it. What am I going to do about it? And as you start to look at some of the parts that you believe you can change, you've got to make the decision and say, I want to change them, not for anyone but for me, so it can raise and elevate my my energy, me, mm-hmm. makes me a better person. So I'll do the work of cleansing myself. If I can find something, I'll move, I'll change it. Because I'm a theatre healer, I do theatre healing on myself. Mm-hmm. I change my patterns. I clean myself up. And what theatre healing basically says is, If you think about your body, it's a storehouse of every emotion, every drama, every trauma. If you don't release them, it jams you up like a river. It should be flowing. It's a bit sluggish. So every time you move a chunk of gunk out, light comes in and the body flows a little bit better. So all your natural gifts you have in terms of being psychic, clairvoyant and all this stuff, um, they are hampered because often your chakras aren't as clear as they should be. Now, they can never be blocked up and stop because you'd be dead, of course. But... (laughs) The bottom line is your body needs to flow and it shouldn't be cluttered up. 
So I do the homework, I meditate, I self-cleanse, I get the guides to help me. Yeah. And I don't see and hear everything. I'm not the most amazing psychic, but I do have many experiences. I do work with spirit. And the more I do it, the more the, do the doors open. Mm -hmm. And the number one thing is you need humility. You must have humility. So I, I base my life to be, I, I look at um, compassion, humility, non-judgment, all of these things. Yeah. And if I look at, you know, reducing the, the ego, which is number one, you, you can go a million miles. And if you have God in your life through prayer, mm -hmm. you can't go wrong. But when you stay stuck with the ego and you have an external world, you're actually lost. You're like one of the puppets, one of the sheep. And you've yeah. got to stop and go, well, who, who am I? And as soon as you ask that question and you look in, you realise there's only you. There's nothing out there. There's only you, your experience. You're looking through these two little eyes and everything that happens to you happens experientially. And you're the one who has to make sense of that. And when you start digging in and asking the question, then you start to get to know more about you. And as you start to ask more, you can ask God and the guides to bring you more that makes sense for you. Mm. But you have to ask. And the world of spirit will happily help if you ask. Yeah. If you don't, they can't. So I make it a rule to ask. And I'm always trying to see, to feel, to know, to do. Not to be amazing or whatever. I would just like to be a better healer to help people. I would like to know more so I can share what I know with people to help them. And, and whatever time I've got left in this earthly walk, I want to be of service and give. Yeah. So for me, I do it for those reasons. And the other part is I'm at a point where my heart absolutely knows there's no other path to walk. It has to be an inward journey to God because everything's about God. Irrelevant where you come from or whether you have a religion or not. It's got nothing to do with religion. It's to do yeah. with divinity. So for me, all the gifts and everything you hold comes from this inward journey, the inward practice, the self-cleansing, and you've got to be diligent. And you've got to be diligent seven days a week. And every time you fall down and you, and you don't do the right thing based on what you've set up, you need the courage to stand up and own it, dust your feet off, dust your little knees and go, you know what? That's that old recurring bullshit I've been doing for the last 20 years. What the? I'm going to do my best to change that. And as you start to become more aware of your patterns, you can start to change them, clear them, stop them and put new ones in and you mm -hmm. change. Mm -hmm. So that's the path I try to walk. And, yeah, I'm the same as everyone else. I'm full of it like the rest of them, <laughs> but I'm trying and I'm aware of it. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk a little bit more um, about self-limiting beliefs? You kind of alluded to them and, and I, I mentioned it a little bit at the top of the hour, but, you know, I guess when I think about self-limiting beliefs, I think about things you know, patterns in the sense of, you know, fear of success, failure, uh, fear that we're not good enough, fear that we're, uh, you know, unlovable or not worthy of being loved, fear of rejection. You know, what are your thoughts on self-limiting beliefs? And can you talk a little bit about whether or not all of our beliefs are even from this lifetime? Because I'm under the impression that sometimes we're carrying shit that's not ours. Yep. Yeah. When I reflect on the, the many clients I get, a, a general healing could be someone turns up um, and they might say, oh, I've got such and such problem and this is really upsetting me. I'll go, right, so I'll just sit there and talk to them. And, and many examples could be um, people come to me because their family is dysfunctional their mum or their dad's done something or they don't really like them or they've treated them in a certain way. And then when you start listening to the story, 
you'll start to hear them say things like, um, well, my father was very harsh. He used to give me hidings when I was a kid. He never listened to me. And it was his way or the highway. And mum never stood up for me and whatever dad said went. And even if it wasn't right, mum always sided with dad. And I think she's a bitch. And, and it goes on and you go, right. And you, and you hear the overall story. And then, we, then I start to dig in and I'll say, well, how did it make you feel when dad was doing this and mum wasn't supporting you? Well, I felt unloved. You know, mum was supposed to care for me and she loves me more than dad, but she didn't even help me. And I said, well, what happened? Well, I felt rejected. And as I start digging down, you'll hear these high word, these level words come up that are like, there'll be things like issues around rejection, issues around being unloved, not accepted, not good enough, unworthy, not belonging, not fitting in. And these often are core bottom belief systems that a lot of people are carrying and they all present in different ways. And as I'm looking at this story, say with this mum and dad story, I'll say to them, okay, so when did this happen? And it might have happened like they, they could be 20 now when it happened when they were 10. They go, yep. And I'll say, just leave that for a minute. When was the earliest time that you can remember having these feelings that we've just talked about? Oh, well, uh, well, actually, I can remember when I was five and I was at the, the kindergarten or the, or the preschool and this is what happened to me. And then they'll tell you a story where the teacher or some other kid's done something and brought up a lot of these feelings. And you go, right. Then as you start digging in, you can see the core beliefs and often it relates to the ones we just talked up initially. And then you go back in time and sometimes you'll notice, um, and it depends on if I'm clear enough to see, I'll see and just know that, I need to look at this, this kid as a baby in the womb. So it's like you're looking at the mother and you can see the baby and you're in the baby watching it and you can see the downloads coming from the mum or the dad and, and you'll just know and you go, yep, that's, that's stuff coming from the mum. She's holding this stuff. So it could be you picked up stuff from the mother or the father or both mm. and it could even be an ancestral lineage thing going back that they picked up the beliefs you've inherited as a baby. And then sometimes you're looking at this baby and you can see a link like a psychic cord going. If I can see that, I'll try and follow it. And if I can follow it, it takes me to a past life. And as I'm going down to the past life, um, I say to God, the creator, okay, show me the earliest thing that you can show me about this incident that we're looking at. And it'll show me a life. And it might be a kid in Rome. And then I'll see another one. Oh, no, it's going way back. And it could be way back in Japan, for example. And you're going, right. And then when it stops... I, can, I start to see a scenario and it could be a kid in a family and things happen and guess what? The same kind of beliefs are sitting there, different scenario, different world, different life, but very similar and there's all traumas around whatever that incident was and it happened way back then. And then through their history of timelines, there's little glitches and you can see it. Then it comes up into the baby, they get downloaded by mum and dad with their, their crap. They're now birthed and... Life starts to happen and then little things happen. And sometimes their beliefs they have are learnt and other times those, those beliefs wake up in them and they just start to have things that they don't even understand why. And then now adults and they're coming to you and presenting. So nine and ten things they present with are not immediately, I had a fight last week with my partner and this is what's going on. It goes way back. And it could be past life. It could be ancestral stuff, lineage stuff. It could be a whole raft of things. And then while all that's happening, um, there are all kinds of other things multidimensionally that could be going on. So you've got to look at them and clean them up. So nothing is straightforward. And then when you clean one little thing, and they only told you one little story, that's one big chunk of stuff and it's massive, 
Yeah. And then I say to the client, if you want more healing, and I explain to them, it's not about you coming and giving me money, it's more about you coming to clean your stuff, to clean you, to move forward and grow. And I said, if you understand that, you will want to come back and keep cleaning because you're holding very deep-seated stuff that most people can't help you with. But this is the stuff you can cleanse. And when you cleanse it, for all the, the negative limiting beliefs that are pulled out, for example, if you have one that says, um, I'm unloved, I'm not worthy, I expect rejection and failure, I'm ugly, and I expect my life to be hard. Often when you dig in and find these beliefs and you reflect on that person's external everyday life, guess what? They tend to present as that. So what you give is what you get, and the world presents it back to you. And so generally, if you're astute enough to look, you can look at anyone and you go, yep, I can see your external world. That's a pretty good reflection of what's inside. And when you dig, it's exactly what you're seeing. So you train yourself to start to see the external to the internal. Mm. And as I dig in, if I can pull those beliefs and there's a way you pull them, God actually does it, the creator does it. And then you download the opposites and the opposite could be, you know, if you're unloved, you would actually ask the creator to download into that person across all their levels. And that person is, um, has creators, understanding, awareness, knowledge, wisdom, experience and know-how, definition of what it means to be loved how to be loved, lovable and loving, um, to have that experience, to know what it means to grow up in a loving family with a mum and dad who loves them, accepts them, um, nurtures them, looks after them, cares for them. And all the things that they didn't have, you can download it and you can put all the stuff that they was bad and the trauma and move it. And then you download every cell of your being with this new energy. And when it comes from creator and the, and the number one here is the experience of it, it's downloaded and their life starts to change. Mm-hmm. but if there are other things affecting that are linked in and you haven't found, then it may affect it and the healing isn't quite done. So it's not just straightforward, but, it, but that's how you do limiting beliefs. Yeah. And a lot of people will hold these things for many, many reasons, from being black, white, fat, short, tall, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. And all their problems. Yeah. And I, I can say that I've had theta healing done in the past and done, um, done it myself to myself as well, and it's really powerful. Um, probably more so when somebody of your caliber, James, and we had another Theta healer on the show, Veronica McClintock. She's also very powerful. And it's, um, it's quite something when, you know, you, you get that work done and it really can change your whole life. Do you think mm. a lot of our, do you think a lot of things can be healed by love, by self-love? And absolutely, that's something a lot of people struggle with. I struggle with that too sometimes, self-love. I'm sure it's a, a pretty common thread that everyone has. You know, I think that we're taught in this life to be so many things to so many people. We, we It's just it's, sometimes it's challenging, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. The self-love is probably the biggest one I come across with most people. Yeah. And when you think about it, um, I don't know, if you look around the world right now, you look on the TV, uh, oh no, you turn on, there might be all the, all the models on the catwalk. Who are they? These tall, long-legged, skinny, half-anorexic things, and they're supposed to be beautiful. And the world is taught that's what a sexy, hot, beautiful woman is. So all the girls are going, oh, I'm a bit fat, I'm this, I'm that, so there's problems. And then you look at the men and all the little scrawny blokes, and then you have the big muscle man and rah, 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 so they all got these ideas of how it's supposed to be. So all of a sudden, your body isn't quite up to scratch and people have these problems. Then this thing's too big, it's too small, I'm too fat, too short. And then when you actually start digging and doing the healings, you'll find a lot of these people have picked up 
at an early age, even from their parents' baby in the womb and whatever, that they don't really love themselves. They're not good enough. They're unworthy. They're just pretty mm. mediocre and average. And then society reinforces it with all of these pictures on the TV. Yeah. And so they become this poor character with all this stuff and they're trying to fit in. But the problem is, is when you hold all these limiting beliefs that you're, you're not good enough, they then become your truth. You then say, I am ugly, aren't I? I'm not really, I'm just average. And that's what you expect an average partner and so on. So when you start doing the work and you say, well, if you learn to love yourself, what does that mean? I'll often give clients exercises and I'll say, well, what does love mean to you? And they go, oh, you know, I love my kids and my, and my dog. And I say, all right, well, when you love your dog, what do you do? I pat it and hug it and it's like just so beautiful. I don't even care if it smells a bit, but I love my dog. And you go, yep. I said, it's beautiful. And they go, yep. And I said, it's hard to put it into words, but you know what love is, yep. I said, you hug your dog. You feel that love and then you step back and you go, I'll just borrow that. And you go, oh, I love you, James. And you hug yourself in the mirror. And you go, I love you with all my heart the way I love that dog. And if you can love your partner, God, the flower, whatever, you you pinch borrow and steal that love and you give it to you. And you stand in the mirror and you go, how you going, gorgeous? And you smile, yeah. give yourself a big hug. You're hot, you're sexy, you're beautiful, whatever it is. Yeah. And you tell yourself and you ought to keep reinforcing it. And yeah. I say to them, I say, you know, You've been conditioned to believe all this stuff that isn't true. So then I'll tell them things like, well, you know, and I've heard this and, and I've heard guys say this and women are the same. You'll see some some poor person, some woman walk past. There could be four or five blokes and one go, oh, man, she's hot. And the next one, oh, no, she's average, man. No, nah, she's ugly. wouldn't touch her a 10-foot stick, mate. Well, who's right? Yeah. And when you look at all the opinions, it wasn't that the girl was ugly or beautiful. She was just her. But in her own little skin, she was a perfect being walking past and she was perfect just as she was. But yeah. everyone had their opinion what beautiful was. And I said to these, and so when I say to people, I said, you think about it, nobody's right. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And I said, if God grew this garden with 10,000 flowers, look around. Every flower is different and everyone is uniquely beautiful. And I said, who's to say which one is more beautiful? It's a matter of opinion. God sees it all as beautiful, just like you. Mm. And I said, therefore, it's not the external that we're going to focus here. It's focusing inward. And when you go in and start to love you, I said, who's in there? There are millions and millions of cells that are conscious and awake that make this body up, and it's you, the community, not just James, it's this community called body. And every one of them cells feel everything I think. And if I think I'm ugly and no good, they feel it, and they start to reflect the truth because yeah. that's the law of manifesting. So if I can turn around and start loving little me by bringing the love in like the dog, I can do the downloads and pull out I'm unlovable, not good enough, and put in creators I'm loved, lovable, and so on. I can change the program, which is unconscious beliefs. I can make them your conscious ones as well. And you do the conscious practice of bringing the love in. Watch love movies. Look, look at couples in love holding hands and go, oh, that's beautiful. And imagine you've got some of that. And do all the things that bring love and step away from the things that pull you down and make an effort. And when you start to do that, more of that higher, higher vibrational energy, which is love and the highest energy in the universe is love, it starts to come into your life. You start to change. You start to present better. And what you believe in here starts to show on the outside. And the world starts to see your truth. And the very energy you give out, what you give is what you get, and the world comes up and shows likewise. And so people can see it works for them, providing they bring it in here. And the bottom line is if you are a divine being of light expressing through physicality and you are divinity, you aren't ugly. You're not unworthy. You're beautiful. 
You are phenomenal at every level. And because you are so amazing, you have to own that and believe that. And go, you know what? I'm going to stop this bullshit. I am this divine being. And I come here on behalf of God to have this experience on behalf of my soul, the divine. And if I'm this amazing, why shouldn't I have an amazing life? And when you start to think that way and you bring this light into here and wake it up, it starts to open up, it starts to wake up. And the very things you start to think about become your truth. So no one can bring you the love from outside. You've got to bring it into you because it's already here. Mm-hmm. So you resonate with the truth. You open the door, but you pinch bar and see everything you can to wake and harmonise up here. So yeah. I tell people these sort of stories and the ones who do it, their life changes. Yeah. And, and it, just to add one quick thing to it, there was a man, I'm an artist as well, so this man um, wanted to know about my paintings and I said, oh, yeah, yeah I, I paint. And he said, oh, do you sell them? And I said, yeah, I've got them all over the world. And I said, I'm not famous, but they just sell. Oh, and, and you see his whole demeanour drop. And I said, oh, well, do you don't sell? And he says, no, mine don't sell. I'm going, oh. So me being me, I go, oh, you just got to put the love in, mate. And he says, what? And you can see him looking at me like I'm an idiot. And I said, I'll explain something. <laughs> I said, I get a blank canvas. I'm a dot painter. I'll decide on the theme, the concept, and then I'll start painting it. And just say, oh, no, some of my paintings take 60 hours. I might do an hour today, but what I do is I'll do a little mini prayer that the painting is blessed. I do a little mini meditation, which means I still myself. I then mix my paints and I start. In that one hour, you can do a lot of thinking. I do my best not to think of low vibrational energies. So I don't think about sex. I don't think about anger. I don't think about resentment. If I catch myself, I pull myself up. Well, stop that. And I go back to good thinking. Then when that one hour is up, I ask God to bless it. I fill it with light. I bring my healing energy into it and I bless the painting. I'll do that 60 times. And then when the painting's finished, I again bless it, cleanse it. And I ask God to take any negative energies out that's full of light. And the intention is to make it a medicine painting full of love, light and healing. Then when the client buys it, guess what? It's a medicine painting and it's pouring big time energy. It is. And they go, wow. So anyway, I told the man that. I said, you've got to put your love in it. Believe you can sell it. So anyway, he looked at me like an idiot and off I went. And then anyway, I think six months passed and this bloke bumped into me in the market, nearly bowled me over, James, James, James. And he had a great big smile for me. to His whole demeanour changed. His shoulders were up. He was beaming. He now sells his paintings. And because he brought love in, he, at the time he didn't have a relationship. Now he's married and got a wife and he sells paintings. And so that one little story of love changed him, but he listened. And he listened. it wasn't hard. He listened. He was ready. He was right. Yeah, he was ready. Yeah. Thought, yeah. Yeah. So when you think about love, to me there's only two things in the universe. There's fear and there's love. And love is God, the highest energy that we can muster. And if that's your truth, why aren't you resonating to that? Why aren't you trying to be there? I know our bullshit gets in the way, but if we are the divine energy and our path is to awaken the amazing spirits we can, we should be. Or we can believe we're nothing and have a crap one. It's your choice. I'll say, you know what? I've had enough crap. I want to have a better one. I can't yeah. change my past, but I can keep moving forward, making it better. And love is the key to everything. It's the highest vibration, so I want to be in there if I can. Yeah. And I love your action steps, you know, for people at home as well. I think sometimes it's so easy to get caught up in our thoughts and, you know, to echo what you were saying, those lower vibrations and it comes down to you deciding no, 
I will not sit and marinate in this shit, you know, excuse my language. I will make an effort. I will stand up. I will put on music that makes me feel good. I will watch a movie that's full of love. I will, you know, do all the action steps that you're taking because sometimes that's what we need to do is we need to take an action and a decision and go, no, I will not wallow be a victim and sit in this because I'm sure you believe what you resist persists and what you think about more and more and more will grow. So if you're not taking those action steps to decide where you want to head, it'll be done without you and you could be going in the other direction. Absolutely. And, and, and if you do, if you meditate or sit still and you become aware of what your habitual patterns and thinkings are, you should write them down. And you know what they are, but when you start to notice them, you hear all these broken records playing, write them down. And then if you go and see someone like a theatre healer, you can say, I've got three or four things I want to work on. And then soon you say, well, what's this one you talk about? And before you know it, you're telling a big story about it because it's in your life. And you can move it, you can cleanse it. Then you're becoming consciously aware of your stuff. And, and a quick one on it is I, I give people next, uh, a technique. I say it's called the... Um, I actually call it the basket technique because we're a bit like a basket case. Mm. So in the middle is a basket and it's labelled ego. And then there are all these spokes coming off like a wagon wheel. Then there's an outer circle. And where all the wagon wheel spokes come off, you put little circles and you go, right, we'll label them. Ego in the middle, a spoke goes off. One could be anger, lust, greed, hate, whatever it is. Every emotion you can believe about you. I said, now on a piece of paper, write down the word anger as an example. And you go, yep, when I'm angry, what happens? I scream and shout. What else? Uh, I kick the dog. Um, I'm pissed off for a day. My wife's a bitch. Um, and all of a sudden, there's two pages of stuff of all your actions, behaviours, beliefs, about one word, angry. And I'm going, wow, there's a lot of stuff happens when you get angry, isn't it? You go, yep. Now pick another one. All of a sudden, they fill out these papers, and what they're doing is they're doing an inner reflective self-inventory of all of their key themes for the first time and actually seeing for the truth of what they actually do to themselves and others, and it's down there on paper, and it's their truth. And I say, now you can actually start to see who you are with all your crap. Now, don't be mean to yourself. Be loving. Acknowledge who you are. Where do you want to start? What bit do you want to work on? And as you start to move things, you clean up. It's a bit bit of a journey, but there's no other way to clean the journey. You've got to own your crap, but you've got to be able to see it. And most people are asleep, so they see nothing until someone says, do you know you're picking your nose in public? No, I'm not. They, they don't have, they have no idea. But mm. as soon as you wake them up, they become more aware of what the habit is. So you've got to shake them awake a bit. Mm. But I think going back to what you said, if you're doing exercises like that, it's about having compassion for yourself too. Because I know that'd be easy to to sit there and look at yourself and think that, you know, you suck. <laughs> When really it's yeah. about having compassion. And I think, you know, Maya Angelou said, and it resonates with me all the time, which is, you know, when you know better, you do better. And absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot of people are told they do suck, they're not good enough, and they yeah. just stay there. And it's like, well, what can I do about it? Nothing. And others are just so lethargic, they couldn't be bothered. But if you're fair income, you should be bothered. It's your life. Yeah. And, and when you look around the world, a lot of people have a lot of stuff they're doing and they're having a good time. It's not even matter what you have, it's are you having a good time? And yeah. you, know, you go, well, why, why, why aren't I? It's because of what's in here. But if you want the good time, you can have it, but you've got to do it the right way. So to me, I joke and say, I've got a shovel and I'm all shoveling my crap, but I have to. And really, that's the journey for every one of us. If you want to walk this path, 
into so-called greater enlightenment, greater awareness. Mm. But you can't be full of, you know, gunk and expect to be standing in light. It doesn't work. You're either one or the other. And the more gunk you have, the more you shovel it and the more you put the light in. And before you know it, the chocolate milk starts to turn into vanilla, doesn't it? So I, I, I say things like this to people and they go, oh, okay. And that's what I've learned over the years. There's no fancy tricks. There's no big waffly stories to tell. It's just the hard yard basics. And if you get down to simple basics and get all the bullshit and put it to one side and go, all right, how do I start to shovel the stuff? It's no harder than what I've, I've said. Pick one, work on it, work out what you can do about it and choose to change it because you want to change it for yourself because you wish to be better, not for anyone else but for you. And then when you do that, it's real. Otherwise, you're talking about an ego-based thing. So it's about self-healing, self-cleansing and becoming better, a better me. So that's what I try and be. And you know what? I've been doing it a long time and I'm still full of it. But I'm getting there. Yeah. I have a mountain left. Thank you so much, James, for such a fabulous conversation. I would love to have you back on the show again, you know, at some point in the future. You've given so much wisdom and you're so articulate and a lot of really, you know, hands-on things that people can use as well. And yeah, thank you so much. I'll put your contact information in the show notes. If somebody is interested in seeing your art, do you have that anywhere online where they can see it? Or is there a At way this to... Stage, no, but they're more than welcome to give me a call and we can chat. Okay, great. Yeah. So thank you, Lauren. Thank you as well. And I'll, I'll be looking at you another day. Yes. <laughs> thank <laughs> lucky you. you. <laughs> yeah. No, lucky me. God bless. God bless. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave us a review where you listen to your podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you. New episodes every Thursday.